The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your word through which, in which you speak to us and you tell us about ourselves, help us to understand ourselves, and you tell us about you, help us to understand you. And then you want to put the two together and help us to understand ourselves in light of you. And this psalm does some of that today, and it does that in a way that deals with trouble and affliction in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you would mercifully draw near to us and help us to think well, to feel along your paths. We, we feel just, we just wake up feeling. We go, we go through the day feeling. Would you help us to feel along your paths? To understand ourselves in light of you and use this psalm towards that end, please. So speak here, Lord, help my words to be clear. Help us to, to listen, to, to focus well. And Lord, I'm, I'm aware. It just, uh, something that feels to me, maybe I, I hope I'm feeling along your paths here, but I, I want to ask you as I feel some, uh, some coldness here, would you warm us? Maybe it's just me, maybe it's some of us, maybe it's all of us, but would you warm us? We do not want to be a people who exist cold. So Spirit of God, would you warm us? Warm us to our Lord. Stir us with a sense of the presence of this God who, of whom we have sung such wonderful things but who can remain distant from us. We heard prayed earlier such sweet truths about how you have moved and, and acted to save all of us, to take all of, all of what we are. Lord, would you make that precious and sweet to each one of us. We've sung about how it is, it is sweet that, that our souls can be at rest with you and, and can know peace. Would you make that true for all, each one of us? Warm us. Maybe I'm just praying for me. Warm me. Would you speak in this passage, Lord, and open our eyes to ourselves and to you and warm us? Pour out your spirit here now, I ask you, Father, and build a church that is pleasing to you and honor your name here in our midst. You're good. We look to you now to, to experience some of your outpoured goodness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In recent weeks, we've seen several examples of one of the dominant themes of the psalm book, praise, calls to worship, exhortations to sing and give thanks to the Lord, reasons for such praise recalled, you know, that present to us God's character, the, the Psalms will show us his power, his, his steadfast love, and his, and his faithfulness, 
particularly see him enacting his steadfast love powerfully to work righteousness and justice into the world for his people. We've seen that often. Last week as we looked at Psalm 101, then we saw a psalm of resolve, which was expressing dedication on David's part to be like what God is like. So we've seen this righteousness and this steadfast love and praising it, and now he says, I want to live out that. I want to be that, which, of course, he wants us to be. Righteousness within ourselves and, and out in the world as we, as we speak and as we act. To be and to work for righteousness and justice, which is according to God's standard, of course, not the world's standards, not our friend's standards, but according to, to God's standards, what God says in his word is righteousness and justice and how God empowers that through his spirit. So it's God's people taking God's standard from God's word and God's power to be and then to live out righteousness and justice in the world, which, as we saw last week, is what is loving to the world. Both those things together. That's how we love the world around us. We live in God's power for God's righteousness and for God's justice in the world as he gives us strength. So in a way, as, as we're doing that, even then we're declaring the praise of the Lord. We're worshiping God as we are striving after and then living out this righteousness in the world. So that's what we've seen so far. And then as we come to today, Psalm 102, we take a turn and touch on another one of the dominant themes of the book of Psalms. Affliction and sorrow. If you were to ask people who just kind of know a, a little bit about the, the, the Psalms, you know, what's, what's there, you'd probably get, well, there's a lot about worship and there's a lot about crying. There's a lot of sorrow. Those are two dominant themes here. And so we've talked about one, and today we look at, at the other. We meet an unknown writer in an unknown situation. There, there are some vague clues throughout that have led to some people kind of guessing. It probably has something to do, the situation probably has something to do with with enemies attacking, maybe besieging the city, maybe destroying it, and he's definitely looking forward to God's final deliverance and his bringing in of the kingdom. Kind of a fixing this all once and for all. That's what he's looking forward to. So there, there are some guesses there, but actually we don't really know what he's facing, and that's actually helpful to us. Because it enables us to take our own afflictions and our own sorrows and kind of read them right into these verses and pray these verses right along with our own lives. To go to God and to cry out to him expectantly, and then to learn to deal with the answers that come, some of which are no, not yet. To go to God, to cry out to him expectantly, and to learn to deal with the no, not yet answer. That's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to make two observations from Psalm 102. Here's the first. And it's related to what the psalmist feels and what he does with that. Modeled for us in this psalm and surely throughout all of the psalms. He feels something and then does something with that. So here's the first point. It is proper and important for us to communicate with God amidst our sorrow. It is proper and important for us to communicate with God amidst our sorrow. Verses 1 to 11 are an elaboration on what we see there written 
before verse 1, the introduction to the psalm. We've seen this before sometimes. Maybe in your Bible it's written in a slightly different font, maybe smaller, maybe in all bold. Some sort of a clue about the author or the setting. Well, here we have this written. This is an afflicted man, one who, while he is faint, pours out his complaint before the Lord. Complaint, not, not as in a, a gripe, he's not griping to God, but a complaint as in, here's my problem. Here's my grievous situation, what's, what's wrong? He's laying that out, that's what it says we're going to get, and then verses 1 to 11 show that. He goes to God asking him to hear, to let his prayers come into God's presence. He wants God's presence, his face, his ear. He wants to be received, and he wants an answer. That's what he's getting at the very end of verse 2. Answer me speedily. He, he doesn't really want just a notification that he heard. He wants an answer. He wants God to respond because he's afflicted and distressed and needs help. So he goes to God, please, I'm in great need. Hear me. And then verses 3 to 11 display that great need. Bracketed at the beginning and at the end of this of 3 to 11, we get reference to my days and withering of grass. In that we get a, a clear, but a metaphorical, but, but a clear picture of what this man's depressed state looks like, of what his sorrow looks like. He sees himself as being burned in a furnace and his life going up in smoke. He sees himself as, formerly I was lush grass, I was green grass growing up and, and drawing from the earth moisture and life, and now I've been just cut off, and I'm lying on the ground dying. And I'm no longer going to, he thinks, no longer going to draw life from the ground. My, my future is just I wither and I wither and I turn brown, and then I turn dark brown, and then I get burned. I'm dead. My life's over. He's so depressed that he can't even eat. He forgets to eat, and he's losing weight as his bones, his flesh sticks to his bones. He's in a bad state, and interpersonally, with reference to these birds in verses 6 and, 11, he, six and 7, he feels like he's all alone, living in the wilderness, in isolation. Alone, except for the enemies. Great help. He does have enemies all around him who taunt him and use his name for a curse. When they want to insult somebody else... They call that other person him because his life is so bad. They're using his name as a curse. All his life is is eating ashes and drinking tears all the day long. Sorrow and distress and trouble. And why is that? Verse 10. Because of your indignation and anger, Lord, you've taken me up and thrown me down. You body slammed me. Which is maybe a bit unsettling. Think about God picking up this guy and throwing him down. That's an unsettling picture. But it makes a little more sense if we think about it in light of the larger context. And as I said, we don't exactly know exactly, exactly all the details here. But there is something that, that is clear. This man is seeing his personal problem, his situation, whatever exactly it is, 
is part of a larger problem facing the people of God. Verses 1 to 11 are very personal, me, my, I. But 12 and following becomes much more corporate. He begins to talk about the people of God and the city of God and the nations and God setting captives free and God delivering his people and hearing all of their cries. So what's clear is that whatever exactly is going on, his problem is a piece of the larger community problem. The people of God as a whole are being troubled, afflicted. As we think about the Old Testament, that almost always happens when the people of God have disobeyed God and are being disciplined by him in some way. So it's, it's the big corporate setting in which his life is set, and, and it's their disobedience there as, as a whole that have aroused his anger. Not in a, a final condemning sort of sense, not in a final eternal wrath sort of sense, but it is, in fact, the discipline of the Lord. It is his hand on all of them, and on his life, individually. They're all feeling it, and our writer's feeling it, and breaking under it, and distressed, and in this sense, he correctly recognizes this has come from the Lord to us, it has come from the Lord to me, from his hand. God's done this. God's determined that it's right, that it's necessary. Nothing happens that doesn't come from God's hand. He's just writing that down, clarifying it. He knows it. As we turn and track with that for ourselves, it's worth noting that we don't know anything in particular about this man's particular sin. So one, one so if, if you hear what I just said and then make a, a slight mistake, what could sound like is, Whatever affliction I'm facing is because of my sin. I've done something disobedient, and therefore God is. That's not necessarily true. We don't know anything about this man in particular. We know about the community. Now, of course, it is possible that God's discipline rests on you because of your sin. Examine yourself and see if that's the case. See if God would be saying to something, something about you, this needs to change. But maybe not. It's not correct to say, I'm suffering because I have done something wrong. Maybe not. Maybe, ask yourself, but maybe not. But even if not, you can still say, this is still, and this man still says, this has come from God's hand. God is looking at my life. God is considering everything here, and he has determined that something is appropriate about this happening to me right now. It's still come from his hand. It's still in effect. It's it's his decision to bring circumstances that are troubling and that are afflicting, to bring them to you. So the key point in this is that this guy says, verse 10, while also saying verses 1 and 2, God has brought this to me, he says, to God. while crying out to him, while laying his hurt and his concern, his affliction, his sorrow, right in front of him, Lord, hear my prayer. I am hard-pressed. I am faint. This is what's wrong. It's come from you. He says both those things together, both of them, honest about the situation, 
to God. So must we say, this is where I am. This is what I'm facing. This is what's troubling me. It's come from your hand and talk to God about that. And too often we don't. Too often we don't. Instead, we tend towards crying out to ourselves about that. Or maybe crying out to other people, a listening friend maybe, as a replacement for crying out to God. Not that we shouldn't sit in solitude and reflect. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm way in favor of that. Not that we shouldn't talk about our life situations and heart reflections with a close, listen to all the qualifiers here, this is critical, with a close, wise, biblical, Christian friend who will point me to the truth of the scriptures. Oftentimes we seek out friends who will tell us what we want to hear. All the qualifiers are wise, biblical, Christian friend who will point me to the scriptures and the truth they're in. I'm not speaking against quiet reflection or pouring out your life with some sort of a friend like that. I'm speaking against that instead of as a substitute for going to God and crying out to him. We can and often do sit and reflect about the problem and not actually sit and reflect about God and his presence and his promises and his power and his purposes and his character within the problem. We can do that and, and often do. Now, what, track with me here. What I, am, what I do not want to have happen here is if you're one of those people who, who very much says, 3 to 11 is my life right now. I am sitting right there. What I don't want to do is put a, a dump truck of additional weight on you and crush you under that. But what I am going to do is pull up something that might be a little heavy and at least put it right next to you. Because we often, when we sit in, under that trouble and we sit and we think about the problem or go to friends, we're, we're not actually intending to do what I'm going to talk about, but we, that's what we're doing. Our hearts, your heart, naturally wants to go towards the problem. It does not naturally, by nature, want to go towards God. Just check yourself. You don't have to make yourself ruminate on, go back over, perseverate on the details of your problem about what might happen and about what, what bad thing is going to happen or what bad thing might happen or what people are going to do to you or what, what she said or he said or he did or she did. You don't have to make yourself go back to that, worry about it, stew over it. You just go there automatically. That your heart inclines that way. What you have to make yourself do, take captive and make yourself do, is go to God with that. Take all of that 
all that problem, all those situations, and go to and remember God enthroned, verse 12. You naturally go one way and check yourself. In the, in the moment of distress and trouble, is that the way you're actually going? That's the natural way our hearts bend, but we have to take captive this thought and this tendency, this wayward heart, and say, no, this way. To the God who was enthroned. Watch your natural tendency and watch what even happens in your heart when you drop next to that friend and that friend doesn't want to spend all of his or her time with you talking about your problem. But wants to spend some of that time talking about Jesus and his promises and his power and his purposes and to call you to trust him. Watch what happens in your heart. You get a little frustrated with that. Do you get perturbed by that? Do you feel like you just you want to you want to vent, you want to yell? This is you don't understand how much this sucks. That's what you want to say. You don't you don't get it. I get it. I get it. Do you get Jesus? And when the person says that, you get irritated. Watch that. Watch that. We resent the psalmist's words being applied to us. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Why so downcast, O oh your soul? Put your hope in God. For you will yet again praise him, your rock and your salvation. We want to skip over that and yell out verses 3 to 11. Just say, this is and this is bad. And skip verses 1 and 2 and verse 12 and verse 28 at the end, the great promise of security. It's not good, and it's not helpful to you. Now, I've used the word, I obviously I've talked about resent and yell out, and I'm dealing with someone who is who's frustrated there, but maybe, maybe you're not really in touch with the, the anger against God that's behind that. That God's done this to you, that God's done verse 10 to you. Maybe, that, maybe that's not really on the surface for you, and it doesn't, doesn't appear there. Maybe what just feels like it just feels, I just feel so sorrowful. I feel so sorrowful. It can be there too. Not in touch with words like resent and yell don't apply to you, but, but feel so sorrowful, feel so tired, feel so miserable and hopeless. That can be us too. But here's here's the, the heavy truth that I want to place right next to you, not on top of you, but right next to you. Is that even right there, you still are responsible for what fills your mind and your heart. That's why they are commands be filled with the Spirit command, take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. Command, rejoice in the Lord always. Command, be thankful in all things. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Those are commands because there's some responsibility. Is there, is there, is there, must there be an empowering from God? Yes, but they would not be commands if we had nothing to do with them. 
So ironically, maybe even, so certainly, of course, in the moments when we're angry, but, but even ironically, the moments when we feel so weak and so helpless and so burdened and so crushed, even ironically in those moments, you're more responsible for your own heart than you realize. To avoid turning to and avoid crying out to God inevitably leaves us vulnerable to the winds of circumstance. And in, in this fallen world with fallen people, those winds are going to blow hard and they're going to blow cold and they're going to bring trouble, sorrows. And if, if our heart is tied to, if we're going to wait to go to God until we feel better, then you are voluntarily setting yourself up for trouble and for being broken in the end, finally. Be filled with the Spirit is your hope and your privilege as a Christian. To go into the presence of God is your hope and your privilege as a Christian. And to say to him, maybe by yourself as you personally reflect, if it's difficult, say to a friend, I, help, come here and hold up my hands. I can't do it myself. Come help me do this. Help me go to Christ. But to draw near to him, to come into his presence saying, Lord, this is what you've done, verse 10. Hear my prayer, hear my cry. I need you in the middle of this. And that spirit then, the spirit of God then, he will remind you of this one who is enthroned and who reigns supreme over all things and has it all in his hands. The good news for you, Christian, because you're a Christian, the good news in the gospel for you is that you know something really important about how to interpret verse 10. how to interpret the sorrows of life, even to say these have come from the hand of God to me, you know that everlasting wrath, eternal wrath has been poured on Christ in my place. He was afflicted. He was cut off. He was cast out in the wilderness. He was mocked by enemies. He, that, that's him in an eternal and final sense. The wrath of God in verse 10's stuff, the wrath of God has rested on him. And all that, I don't know how, I can't see it, but all that's coming to me in verse 10, through what God has laid on me, all that's coming to me is what? Condemnation? No, there's none of that for you in Christ. Wrath? No, there's none of that for you in Christ. What, what, what's coming to you then? The steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. His wide and long and high and deep love is coming to you. Maybe we use the word discipline. Maybe we just use the word, I don't know if I can call it discipline, it's just affliction, it's coming to me. But you can know something. that You can read verse 10 and you can say, this has come from your hand, Lord, and I feel this way and it is hard. It is, it is extremely painful. It is at least mildly uncomfortable. It is awkward. What a spectrum, right? And you can know across that whole spectrum what it is not, is not God your enemy. 
It is not God out to destroy you. It is not God done with you. That's what it feels like sometimes. God, if you loved me, you wouldn't do this. That's not true. God, you love me, so you have done this. That's the truth. He doesn't act willy-nilly. He's not arbitrary. Everything that he does, everything that comes from his hand, is intentional, conscious, deliberate, purposeful. And his purposes in your life, Christian, are colored, the beginning and the end, stained all the way through with steadfast love and faithfulness. His desire to do you good. Even through evil things. The wrath went on to Christ and he now only has sanctifying grace and mercy for you in Christ. And where is that grace and mercy found? We heard it prayed already. Most keenly, most clearly it's found at the throne of grace. And so he invites us, come, 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 come. I opened the door for you to come. I didn't open the door for you not to come. I didn't open the door for you to go talk to her. I opened the door for you to come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Draw near to me. And when that happens, when you draw near to me and you come to him praying, Lord, hear my prayer. Here's my, please give me your face. Please give me your ear. And you come and sit at the feet of Jesus and you cry out to him and help. I need, this is what you brought into my life. And it's troubling. It is hard. It is heavy. And I need help from you. What will happen is the spirit of God will say, I own you. I take you. I fill you. And a, a stream of living water will rise up in you and rush out of you. You'll be a new. He'll give you life. In the middle of three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Maybe he'll change that too, but maybe not. In the middle of that, he'll give you life. So don't, you don't try to deny, I'm not saying, we don't deny the, the reality, the pain, the heaviness, the a spectrum of things from 3 to 11. Anything that fits under the words afflicted, faint, complaint, sorrow, distress, lots of stuff fits under that. We don't deny the reality of any of that. When it comes to you, acknowledge and say, there it is, that's true. And then say, and that's true in my life because God deemed it appropriate right now. It's come from your hand. And say that all to God at the feet of Jesus, at his throne, saying, Lord, help. Put it in the context of God enthroned. This is God. To, to not go there, it's, it's common for us, but to not go there, it, it's self-defeating. We miss the help. We miss the grace. God wants to speak to you about his love. God wants to speak to you about his, his empowering you to persevere through, even in the middle of verses 3 to 11, even if it never changes. So we go to God, first point. 
We, we, take, we take this, and it is proper, and it's actually really good for us to communicate with God, to go sit at God's feet, at the feet of his throne, to communicate with God in the middle of our troubles. Secondly, we cry out to God confidently, knowing that he hears and delivers his people. Dot, dot, dot. Eventually. Cry out to God confidently, knowing that he hears and delivers his people. Dot, dot, dot. Eventually. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to use the word I'm going to mention, praying and prayer and, and asking. And what's, what's kind of odd, if you read through this, he has, there, there are requests in here, but the emphasis is one of, of declaration. It's very confident, as we'll see. He cries out to God confidently. Verse 12, the, the attitude of the whole, the whole psalm changes as the psalmist turns from considering his own condition to thinking about and talking about God. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. I'm feeble and fading. You reign always. You are always near. You're always remembered. And then verse 17, the end of that paragraph, and you're the kind of God who regards the kind of prayer that I'm offering. You want to hear it. You don't despise it, but you actually welcome it. This is the believer in distress, first part of the psalm, feeling his own frailty and sitting at the feet of God, communicating with him. He reckons, but you're not frail and you're not vulnerable. You're actually the one who is enthroned and reigns over all of this, and you hear my prayer, and therefore, look at the confidence. So we walk through these verses, look at the confidence. In the middle of that paragraph there, the first paragraph, you are going to hear and answer my, our prayer. You will arise and have pity on Zion. Surely what he's getting at here is he's looking forward to the kingdom. It's time. What he means is I've, I've seen all the promises in the past about how you're going to bring in your kingdom, and that's now. It's time for that. You're going to gather in, verse 15, you're going to gather in the nations, that is the Gentiles, and you will act so that they fear the name of the Lord, and all their kings will fear the glory. They will, they will stand in awe of and respect, wonder at your glory. You're going to move, and that's going to happen. And we, your people, we hold all this precious, this city, and, and we're going to cry out to you, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to hold it precious too. You're going to have pity on us. You're going to act. It's time. You're going to build up Zion, verse 16, and, and shine and roar over us even in glory. This is going to be amazing. Write this down, 18, 19, and 20. Write, this is going to be amazing. Write it down so that future generations will, will look back and see what's happened. They're not born yet, but they need to hear about this and, and, and reckon it and be encouraged by it and drawn to worship from it. Write down how the Lord, how you from your heavenly throne, you looked down on us and saw us in all of our distress and all of our pity and all of our imprisoned, fading, dying, afflicted status. You heard our groans and you set us free. Write it down. It's going to be awesome. 21 and 22. They're going to declare in Zion, 
glory. Liberated and renewed and built up, covered in glory. And, and we who are near and the nations who are far off, like a magnet, it's going to draw everybody. And the worship of you is going to fill this place. You sense the confidence there? It's, it's almost not even request. It's just declaration. This is going to happen. You're going to hear and answer my prayer, and in fact, our prayer. You're going to. It's a confidence that's not actually broken by verses 23 and 24. It seems like he's like going back to his afflicted state. He's broken my strength in mid-course. He's kind of repeating verse 10 there. But what he's kind of saying is confidence, confidence, confidence. I mean, I'm in a bad state right now, but you're going to do this. That, that's the that's the the way of 23 and 24. I'm in a bad state right now, but you're the one who's enthroned, and, and you, God, you, your years endure forever throughout all generations. You're going to do this. You made all the earth, and you control it, and therefore, verse 28, the children of your servants will dwell secure. Their offspring shall not perish before you. Look at that whole thing there. I'm in a really bad state because we're in a really bad state. But you're the God who's enthroned. And you're going to hear our prayer. And you're going to look down from heaven on these captives. And you're going to set them free. And you're going to rebuild Zion and draw all the nations. And the kingdom's going to come. Write it down. It's going to be awesome. Confidence. All the way to the end. This is a model for us in building a praying heart. We should come to him confident like this. What, what, what turned his situation here? Not The situation didn't change. What turned his own mind, his own heart situation is the, the move from 11 to 12. But you're enthroned. You reign. And I know who you are. Should we come to him pouring out our concerns? Absolutely, yes. Honestly and confidently and boldly. Drawing right up near to him because we know he is and he is enthroned and he's the God who hears and he's the God who welcomes us and he's the God who will deliver his people. He's promised to. This is a lesson for us. Confidence because of God based on what he can do and what he will do. Except, he didn't do it. Right? That's the whole big hole in this. That I'm talking about this writer's confidence based on, you read the words, we, we walk through them and you can feel the, I've tried to express it so that you can feel the the enthusiasm and the vigor, you're, you're going to, you're going to, you, you will, you will, you will, you will. It's, it's declaration, not even request, really. But he didn't. Not like he asked, not like he said, not in his lifetime, it didn't happen. So that sort of kills the whole point, doesn't it? 
Let's just close in prayer. No. It seems like this guy clearly had confidence, but he had misplaced confidence. He prayed all this, you will, you will, but it didn't happen. Now, God, of course, did little things here and there, and we don't know exactly the, the particular situation. He might have delivered this guy from that particular trouble, but what he asks for didn't happen. The kingdom didn't come. The nations weren't drawn to Jerusalem. It wasn't built up, and the glory of the Lord didn't hover over it, and the captives weren't set free. It didn't happen. So the lesson, I suppose, is that we should avoid praying like this so as not to look foolish. Is that the lesson? Because we can't ever know with certainty God's timing, and we might ourselves get a no, not yet, in reply to our requests. So we shouldn't be so bold. We shouldn't be so confident because if we are, and we step out there, we're going to get crushed in our depression and sorrow because we're going to bank. You can see this, can't you? This guy's banking a whole lot on what will be. And when it doesn't happen, that's going to be a shot in the gut. That's pretty common. That's a pretty big factor, in fact, behind people turning cold towards God, embittered towards him, even becoming totally dead towards God? I saw his promise. I saw his power. I prayed, and I really needed it. And it didn't happen. So I reckoned his power and... and saw that he loves me, and I prayed, and I needed it even a little bit more because another month had gone by, another year had gone by, and it didn't happen. So I prayed, needing it, and it still didn't happen. Well, that is the last time I ever get let on like that. withdraw or turn off or go a different way. That's not the lesson here either, obviously. Something here that should help us deal with, with that if we follow this through. The lesson is to pray with confidence, to draw near to him with confidence, to turn to him and to cry out to him in our distress and depression and sorrow and thinking this through, knowing who he is. The God who is enthroned. And this may sound like I'm just repeating myself here, but I'm coming to something here. Knowing who he is, the God who is enthroned, who has no beginning and has no end, who made the earth from nothing, laying its foundation, hanging it on nothing, Sometimes think that he made the earth in outer space. There wasn't any outer space. He made it all from nothing and sustains it all with nothing but his own power. And he will one day bring it all to an end. This is the sovereign one, our Lord God. Knowing him, who he is, and knowing how he is. Because that God, who we, that God 
could be any number of different ways. Thank God that how he is, is he's the holy God of steadfast love and mercy. Full of compassion and pity for his beloved people. Who hears, who loves to hear, in fact, the voices of his people. Who has made a way in Christ for us to come near and talk to him. And who loves to sing back over his people with glorious grace. That's how he is. Know that too. And know what he's promised to save his people, to save us, a people from every tongue and tribe and nation, all gathered together and sheltered under his wings as he gathers sheep into a flock, brings us into his pasture, makes us citizens of the city of God, his kingdom. He's promised to rescue us and cut off all evildoers from that city at the end of the previous psalm. That's his promise, and he cannot lie. He cannot be thwarted. He reigns from a throne of righteousness and justice in steadfast love and mercy, the Lord our God. That's who he is and how he is and what he's promised. To remember this one, remember him, you people. Throughout all generations, verse 12 says not just that he's enthroned, but he's remembered. Remember him even if and even when you get a no, not yet, or a no answer. And they sound the same, don't they? Anytime you get a, anything other than yes, immediately. We remember him So what I'm trying to say here is that confidence we need in prayer, the confidence to approach him, to come to him open-handed, surrendered, submissive, is not, must not be built on. Not that he doesn't answer prayer. He doesn't answer prayer immediately sometimes. I'm not trying to speak against that at all. Not, Not at all. But it doesn't, can't be, must not be built on witnessing the answer to our prayers right when we want them. Can't be. But instead, it's meant to be built on God remembered. There's a huge difference there. The person who says, I'm not going to do that again, I'm not going to get strung out like that again, I'm not going to falsely hope in that again, is saying... The ground upon which I will approach you, God, I don't mean to crush you with this, is whether or not you meet my timetable and do what I say. That's all that is. It feels like heartache. It's actually self-centered pride. It's the heavy thing I'm trying to lay right next to it because it it feels like what a moron you are to tell a hurting person that she or he is self-centered and proud. I'm going to try to lay it right next to it and say that's what it is. I determine whether you're trustworthy 
based on whether you meet what I say. That's self-centered pride. Which he wants to relieve you of, not condemn you for. Relieve you of. By pointing out to you, I'm God, I don't work on your timetable. But I'm God and I work. This is important to note. But I'm God and I work. Because, let's loop back through this one more time. What we said was, well, this raises the question of God not working because he didn't do it. And if the psalmist were alive or were to write, you know, the next, you know, part two of this psalm, he'd say, but then I was crushed because he didn't do it. If he was alive today, the psalmist would say, it didn't work. He didn't do it. He didn't come through. We wrote it down to be encouraged, and it didn't happen. Actually, that's not what he'd say. If he was alive today, he'd say something quite different. Look again at verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, us. So the people yet to be created may praise the Lord. He looked down and he heard our groans and he acted to set the captives free, those doomed to die. And it looks to us like the crickets chirped and nothing happened and the tumbleweeds blew by and nothing happened. The glory of the Lord does not come to Zion. The captives aren't set free. The nations aren't drawn into worship His glory for a year, for two years, for five years, for 50 years, for 500 years. But unbeknownst to the psalmist, this actually worked out exactly like he wrote it. Dot, dot, dot. Eventually. even if it wasn't how he meant it. What is this actually written down to testify to? Maybe another way to put it. Who is the you in verses 25 and 26 and 27? The you whose servants and their children now dwell secure. The you before whom they are established. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. Of the Son, it says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then it quotes these verses from our psalm. He did do it. Like he said, not when this prayer expected it, but he did it. God Almighty heard the cries of his anguished people who dwell in darkness, and he came down from heaven and caused them to see a great light, God the Son. Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
the glory of the Lord came to Jerusalem and raised it up, setting free the captives, those who believe, and the nations are being gathered in. That has begun. It has already been done. It's being done. It's not completed yet. Not yet. But it has happened. He's the God who reigns, and it will be done eventually. This is what is intended to be the strong help for our hearts. When we're hurting and when we're doubting, I prayed and it didn't happen. I prayed and it didn't happen. God wants to say, plenty of people have prayed and it didn't happen when they expected it, but it happened. And really what it comes down to is, do you trust me to know what's best and to do what's good and to love you, or do you not? I didn't meet his timetable. True. But I did good to my people, and I caused them to dwell secure, him included. And in the meantime, in the meantime, when I didn't answer like he wanted to, I provided the path for him to find mercy and grace at my throne. He could come into my presence, as he did, and he could find help. I provided that. Even though I didn't change his circumstances, I did meet with him and I did draw him into myself. And he'll do that for you too. But you'll never know that if you don't in confidence draw near to the throne of grace. If you don't take your cares in hand and take them captive amidst your sorrows, take them captive and submit them to Christ and say, you are the God who reigns. I need help in the middle of this. I'm going to ask you to change it. I'm going to ask you boldly to change it and trust that one day eventually you will. Maybe eventually is five minutes from now or 500 years from now. I don't know. But if you don't and while you don't, you still have opened up the door of your throne room, and you put a pillow right at your feet for me, and you say, come sit here, come sit here, commune with me. My, my spirit, I'll pour my spirit out on you, and I'll breathe life into you. And won't that be good enough? It will be good enough. It'll be life for you if you come. The privilege, the call, the responsibility, and the privilege given to you in the gospel. We must acknowledge that we don't know his timetable and barely understand his ways. They are higher than ours. He's God, we're not. But we do know that in Christ, his ways are grace to us for our good, for his glory, planned, <clears throat> planned in and covered in love that is wide and long and high and deep. That breeds confidence, if you remember that. That breeds confidence, if you remember that. And consistently approach him, sorrows in hand, to put them into his hands. We will be established. We are established. We will dwell secure, and we dwell secure right now in part. One day it'll be done fully, eventually. But now we know it in part. May you know it as you draw near to him. Let me pray. Lord, will you draw near to your people here now? And particularly to whichever particular ones, adults, teenagers, kids, 
whatever particular ones right now who feel themselves to be 3 through 11, who feel the, the heat of affliction, who feel the, the deadening effects of sorrow. Will you draw near to those ones in particular, all of us, but those ones in particular, and encourage them to trust you and to follow you, to draw near to you and not run from you, You said, Lord, that you will be remembered by your people. So by your spirit, will you please press yourself into our minds and hearts. Move us that we would be willing to, to sit before you. And then feed us with life. We do ask you, Lord, that in those situations that you would change the circumstances, whatever they may be. Or would you change circumstances? You do that too. Please change. We ask you to bring righteousness and justice, to, to change what's wrong, to, to press sin out of this world right now. We ask you to do that now. We don't know if you intend to. We don't know when you intend to. So in the meantime, draw your people into your presence and feed them with life. That's what I ask you to do now. We thank you for being you. We love and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.